The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Good morning, Grace. Happy Mother's Day to all of our beautiful mothers. Sometimes you speak to a woman and you might say to her in a conversation, what is it that you do? And she'll say, I'm just a mother. I'm just a homemaker. What what an understatement, isn't that? Just a mother, homemaker? I'm going to say without any apology, without stutter, without any hesitation, the most powerful class of people on this earth are mothers. They are, and it's been said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And the man may be the head of the home, but the mother is the heart of the home. And I just want to, before we start, give you a text for all the mothers and fathers as well, because it really applies to all the parents. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and through 7. And the words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently diligently to your children, and you should talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You know, one woman went to a pastor and said, how, how early should I start spiritual training of my child? And the pastor said, how old is your child? She said, five years old. He said, well, you're five years too late. So teach your children the Word of God. Read them the Bible stories before bedtime. And Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way it should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you be with us here today and prepare our ears and our hearts to receive your message that you're going to share with us today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we continue through the book of James, we're coming to the temptations. And you know, A lot has changed in America since I first set foot on the soil of this land. As I watch the news lately, everything that's going on in our country, compared to what we thought this country is when we were moved here, I can no longer say what it says in Psalm 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is Lord. It's sad to say, each day we see Name of Christ being stripped from everywhere. Ten commandments and being removed. They removed the pledge of allegiance. I didn't know what it was, but I had to learn it when I was in school. I didn't know, understand it, but it was written down for me that I had to repeat it. We say we don't want God in our schools or other public places, but then we blame God. We see school shootings on the rise. What do we do? Guns are the problem, not the sinful nature. We blame God, say, why did you let this happen? If there is a God, how can there be a God? He's not a loving God that we hear about. That's one cruel God. Well, you see, in the spiritual world, there's no empty spaces. It's either filled by the Holy Spirit or by the devil. So if you kick out God, that space is not going to remain empty. Something else will take its place. 
And in America today and in the world, we become this nation of victims. Will Rogers, a humorist, said this, There are two eras in American history. There is first the passing of the buffalo, and secondly, the passing of the buck. So the favorite game in America today and the world is the blame game. We played the blame game. God, why did you let this happen? God, you, you, this is the way you made me. God, you created the circumstances. I'm just a helpless victim. The blame game is old as the Garden of Eden. Remember God walking in the midst? Said, Adam, what happened? Well, it's Eve. It's the woman you gave me. She made me sin. Then he goes to Eve. Says, Eve. It's the snake. It's the snake. And of course, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. But nobody wants to take a blame for anything. For anything. Nobody wants to take any personal responsibility. Victimology is what we practice in America. You know, the word sin is old-fashioned. It's old-fashioned. I don't get that. People may be ill, but they're not evil. People may be sick, but they're not sinful. Anything wrong, it has to be somebody else's fault. It's the environment, the glands, the circumstances, and society. You know, I came across a Peanuts cartoon, kind of sums it up. If it, you can put it up here. It says, if I fail that test tomorrow, it'll be all your fault, Chuck, because we talked on the phone too much. You're the one calling me, old. You're the one who call, keeps calling me. Well, you shouldn't answer the phone, Chuck. One time, my nephews was staying with us for several weeks. And, you know, when I say lights out, it's lights out. You go to bed. And, you know, boys, three of them at the time, went to bed. And all of a sudden, I hear fighting and jumping. And you're sitting on the first floor. It's like buffaloes up there. So I take the belt, and I get up there into the room, you know, some, some authority. I open the door, turn on the lights. And their eyes are like deer in the headlights. And one of them, David, says... Cornet, it all happened when Greg hit me back. <laughs> now, how are you going to discipline somebody when they say that, right? But everybody wants to blame somebody else for what they do. Nobody's evil. They're just ill. They're sick. And the only sin today is to call sin, sin. And frankly, this is a real problem in the world today. And we're going to take a look at what God and God's Word has to say about that today. Turn with me in James chapter 1. We'll continue from verse 13 through 17. James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by not evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Last Sunday, we discussed that James uses the word temptation in two senses. One, which is trials, which we talked about last Sunday. And the other one is temptations. We talked about the trials, the tests. Remember, we talked about the Jewish nation in Exodus God will send them bread from heaven to test them if they will walk in his ways or not. God tested Abraham when to sacrifice his son. And when he did, he said, for now I know that you fear God. 
We remember Philip when God tested him and said, where are all these people? How are we going to feed them all with all this bread? Where are we going to buy bread? He did that to test them. So <laughs> things that are not tested can't be trusted, right? In real world, we test cars, automobiles. We test roller coasters. We test all these things. And in high school, you know, when I thought I knew everything, I was given a test. It proved otherwise all the time. But in the same manner that God is going to test your faith. So now James here is flipping the coin of trouble and going to see troubles as temptations. Trials are things that hit us from the outside. Temptations are troubles that we have our, its own origin. It's from inside of us. There's a traitor inside each and every single one of us. The Lord tests us to bring us the best of in us. The devil will tempt you to bring out the worst in you. So I want everybody to understand that the devil has already made plans to sabotage your life. He already dug a pit that he wants you to fall in today. John 10.10 makes it very clear. The thief that does not come to accept to steal and to kill and to destroy, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Apostle Peter also reminds us in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, if you're walking in a jungle, you know, sometimes we read this text and we kind of kind of let it go. But if you're walking in a jungle that's infested with hungry lions, wouldn't you be wa watching where you're going? Wouldn't you like, hey, I don't want to step on that stick and create some noise, attract attention. Wouldn't you be very serious minded looking around? So the devil is out there looking. He's, he's lurking around, ready to pounce on you. But sometimes we don't pay attention. So we are going to be bombarded with temptations, just like with trials, for the rest of your life in every area. It is said opportunity knocks once, but temptation bangs on your door forever. The devil would entice you to sin, and then he will judge you and blame you for that sin. The devil wants to crush you and then blame you for having a limp in your walk. He wants to trip you up and blame you for falling. In Matthew 4, 3, it says, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. So here's tempting him. And then he is accuser. In Revelation 12, 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying from heaven, No salvation and strength and kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So he's going to tempt you, and then he's going to blame you and accuse you of it. So four things I want to notice this morning go over is the definite impossibility, the definite impossibility, direct accountability, and our defense responsibility. So first of all, I want you to notice defense, uh, definite possibility. In James 1.13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, this passage doesn't say if you're tempted, just like when we read about the trials. It doesn't say if. It says when you are tempted, you will be tempted. There is no way you can live on this God's green earth, not be tempted. There's not a mother's child in this building that will not be tempted. You will be tempted. And have you ever met anybody, pious person, that says, I've never been tempted in 50 years or 20 years that I've been following Christ? I have. He was a pastor, too. So I, he didn't speak very good English, so I told him there's a Greek word for that. And it comes from 
two English words from the animal kingdom. Crocodile and abalone. You put them together, you get crocobalone. So then he came back in the evening service and comes up to me, yes, I've never been so tempted to slap you upside the head. And I said, why? Because apparently his granddaughter explained to him what a crocobalone means. So, but when you're living for God, we talked about that, you'll be in the collision with the devil. Not a collusion, you'll be in the collision with the devil. And we talked about it last Sunday when Apostle Paul told the truth to Timothy about godly living, right? In 2 Timothy 3.12, we read, Yes, and all those who desire to live a godly in Christ, godly in Christ, Jesus will suffer persecution. When you become a friend of God, you become an enemy of the devil. There will be opposition. Being saved does not make you immune to temptation. Just get that out of your mind. Don't get the idea by being saved and walking with God will keep you from tempted. As a matter of fact, being a Christian will increase your temptations. Did you know that? Many people don't know that. They think if you're a Christian, especially if you're a good Christian, you're not going to be having any temptations. You see, if you're a child of God, yes, temptations may increase, but your strength to overcome the temptation will also increase. And that's what makes it very glorious. But don't get proud. Don't ever come in your life say that... <laughs> You're no longer going to be tempted. That's absolutely ridiculous. Because, attempt, you know, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't ever think you're high and mighty, young man. A proud man tempts the devil to tempt him. You know that? Proud. Jesus, the only one who ever lived without sin, was tempted. In Hebrews 4.15, we say, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all, in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Underline, circle that word all. We'll get back to it. All. All points. So there's a definite possibility you will be tempted as well. Definite impossibility is also back to James 1.13. We look at the second part of the verse, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. You see, we have a nature that we want to blame someone. And especially, we want to blame God. Now, how do we blame God for our sin? How do we, how do we play the blame game? We don't just come out and say, God, I blame you. We have, we're, we're more clever than that, right? We have a dis, this sort of disguised way of saying God tempted me. You created or allowed this circumstance. Maybe I was born in the ghetto. Maybe my dad was over strict. It's in my DNA. It's in my genes. You didn't give me enough strength, Lord. It's your fault. Maybe this or that. You created the environment. But remember the story of Garden of Eden? They had the most perfect environment. And still sin. So it's impossible to tempt God with evil. It's impossible to tempt God with evil. God cannot be tempted. Why God can, cannot be tempted with evil? First of all, he is completely whole. God has no itch that the devil can scratch. There's nothing that the devil can dangle in front of God and use as bait. Holy, holy is the God Almighty, right? The devil doesn't have anything God wants or needs or desires. And Jesus said in John 14, 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. 
Jesus never sinned. It's impossible to tempt God with sin. That's one impossibility. Second impossibility is that impossible for God to tempt man with evil. God will not tempt anybody to sin. Now, God will test you, but God will not tempt you. God tests us to make a stand. God tests us over and over. You know, if we fail the test, we'll get re-enrolled. When God tests you, it's to make you stand. But God will never, ever, ever dangle any temptation in front of you to sin and induce you to sin. He never tempts anybody with evil. If God was to tempt you with evil, you would have a perfect alibi. You would say, well, who can resist God, right? Who's more powerful or stronger than God? What an alibi that would be for us. God, you're the one who tempted me. But you'll never be able to say that. You'll never be able to say, God, it's the circumstances you're allowed. Uh, allowed. This is the way you made me. No, 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 no. God not, never made you in the way as to sin. But the Bible does tell us in 2 Peter 2.9, and then the Lord knows how to deliver the who? Godly. Out of temptation to reserve the, reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So who are we to blame? Certainly we can't blame God. Is it the devil? Anybody watch a little snippet of, or everybody, I don't know, Flip Wilson? Anybody familiar with that? The devil made me do it. The devil made her buy the dress. The devil made me sign your name to the check. The devil made me do it. Well, let's talk about direct responsibility. And this is the most important thing I want you to pay attention to today. Who has to blame? Where is the direct responsibility? Here, James, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts the responsibility of sin right directly where it belongs. That's the beauty of it. Now, remember, this is not what God said to somebody a long time ago or somebody else. This is what God's saying to us today. So let's read in James 1, 14 through 16. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, in King James Version says lust, and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. You see, there's certain seductiveness to sin. And what I want to kind of look and go through there, there's this anatomy of sin, and you'll understand why I called it look for the hook. So very, very much like it's a moral relationship. First, there's the courtship, what I call. It's the, it's the flirting stage. First thing, once you see this courtship, the devil comes along and he sort of courts you, sort of tantalizes your sin. He dangles it in front of you. And really, uh, all temptations are devil's uh, bait falls into three categories. Devil, devil used the same when he was in Garden of Eden. And the devil used the same ones when he tempted Jesus. Because in 1, 1 John 2.16, it says this, For all... For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. Remember the temptation of uh, Jesus? It's in Matthew uh, 4, chapter 4, and in Luke chapter 4. First of all, he told him to turn the stones to bread, right? Well, that's the lust of the flesh. He was hungry. Then he said, cast down your from the pinnacle of the temple and get the angels. That's the... Pride of life. I am somebody. And then he took the bait of lust of the eyes. He 
threw it out there, said, all these kingdoms can be yours. All you have to do is just bow down to me. You see, the devil went fishing, 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 but Jesus refused to take the bait. devil has his bait, and he tries to draw you away. And all begins with flirtation. Hey, look at here. Look what I got something for you. Now, the devil will throw in the bait. He'll light the match. But the devil has to have the gasoline of the unholy desire. Unholy desire in order for it to do some good. You see, it really begins not on the outside, but on the inside. Mark 7, 21, 23 says, From within of our, the heart of men, Proceed evil thoughts, adulterous fornications, mortals, thefts, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now we're going to see that sin is an inside job. But the problem is nobody wants to admit that anymore. person says, I practice Sexual perversion because I was born with this desire. Friend, that's no more excuse than a thief can say, I steal because I was born with this desire. I steal because I'm poor. Murderer can say, I kill people because I was born with this desire. This is the way you made me. Therefore, I'm not to blame. We have to understand that sin is an inside job. In James 1.14 it says, but each one is tempted and he's drawn away by his own desire, sins in type. Drawn away is that fisherman's uh, word. So, <laughs> devil goes fishing. He throws it in. That bait is kind of dangling in front of you. The fish is just sitting there behind the log, looking at it, looking at it, looking at it. And then all of a sudden, the fish just jumps. Something inside that fish Side Mr. Fish says, I want that. Suddenly, Mr. Fish can't stand it no longer, and he just explodes and gobbles it, and he finds out there's a hook on it, and the fight is on. Whose fault is it? Is it the fisherman's fault? Partly. But it's also the fish's fault. There's something in the fish that says, I want that. And his own inner desire hooks him. So what the devil does... He throws some kind of bait out there. He knows what to get you with. We all have different desires, but the thing is, we all have them. You know, if he throws out gummy bears in there, I'm going, hmm, I love my gummy bears. But we can't blame the devil for going fishing because the Bible says there's something in you that's responding. The Bible calls it your own desires. Like I said, the King James Version says lust. And the word lust doesn't necessarily mean sexual perversion or a sexual lust. It's all those evil things that we read about in Mark 7.23. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now, the devil throws the lure, throws the bait, lights the match. There's no sin yet. The bait is dangled, so there's no sin. It's not a sin for you to be tempted. You see, but there must be consent. Now, let me share this fishing story with you. My brother-in-law has a huge pond, and he stocks it with fish. 
my little nephews and sometimes Stella, they all go fishing. And one day they were having a competition who can catch the most fish. So I was there to help them, you know, get the fish and help them get it off the hook. And one fish in particular, for whatever reason, I couldn't get the hook off, so I just cut the line and put the new hook on and threw the fish back. A couple of minutes later, that same nephew got the same fish with the fish. Other hook stuck in his mouth, so he got the same fish. So I took this hook off and threw it back. A couple of minutes later, he caught the same fish. So I threw it back. In the end, he ended up winning because he got the most fish. And his little brother, see, sometimes in the world, God gives you little examples that you're like, I got to write this down. And his little brother's other brother said, the only reason you won is because you caught the dumb fish three times. See, the success of the fisherman is not always because he's so smart. It also depends on how dumb the fish is. So, the moral of the story, I think we all get it. You can't keep the devil from casting temptations in front of you but when there is a time when you give consent to that temptation, the hook is set, and just like the fish says, and forgets about the hook three times, and keeps jumping on it. And I want you to uh, notice something here. He changes, James changes the figure of speech in verse 15. He talks about going fishing. Now he's talking about a wedding. Now James, master illustrator, he used everyday things just like Jesus to illustrate his point. In James 1.15, he says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Then desire has conceived. The word conceived means to get pregnant. Desire gets pregnant. Now desire is going to have a baby. A wedding takes place. And when we say, I will or I do, the unholy marriage takes place. When the will and desire agree, when the will says, I do to the lust of the desire, unholy marriage takes place. The devil may tempt you, but you have to agree. You have to give consent. When you say, I do, that leads to consent. So at that point, you cannot blame God. You cannot blame the devil. You cannot blame the circumstances. You're drawn away of your own desires and your lust. You're absolutely free, no matter what the temptation is. It's not a sin to be tempted. You're absolutely free until the point of choice. And when you choose, once you said, I do, that is consent, that leads to conception. It gives birth. In James 1.15, we're still looking at it. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. You see, there's a courtship, there's consent, now there's conception. There's an unholy union that brings unholy child, and unholy child is Sin. So the father of sin is the outward temptation. The mother of sin is your inward lust or your desire. And when they come together, they create this child named sin. And friends, without that inward desire, without the mother, there could be no conception. When the baby is conceived, many times it's a great joy in the physical world, isn't it? People say, look, we're having a new baby. 
is sometimes with sin, people conceive some sack of sin. I'm talking about not having a baby now. I'm talking about sin as a child of lust, consent, whatever it is, whatever it is, at the moment, this sin seems so joyful. It seems so pleasant. It seems, it seems natural, beautiful. How can these be sin? Sin seems good. It does. Nobody thinks sin is bad. If they did, they wouldn't do it. You know what some mistake the preachers make? I had a pleasure of participating in some youth conferences. Several pastors were invited to speak. And at this particular conference, they were talking about telling people that there is no fun in sin. They're trying to say there's no pleasure of sin. And I kind of disagree with that. I think that's ridiculous. Man, there are folks out there living in sin. They're having a time of their life. Don't you know that? They're having a time of your life, and sometimes well-meaning preachers, still kids, now kids, go out here, don't get drunk, don't have any fun, don't go, can't go around, around, you know, commit fornication or anything like that. You, you, and have fun. You can't have those things. Come down to the church. That's where the fun is. Kids are too smart these days, especially with their iPhones and technology. They're having the time of their lives living the barrels of fun, living in sin. And the Bible says there is pleasure in sin. You're like, okay, Cornet's gone nuts. No. Look at uh, Hebrews 11.25 with me. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. The key word here, though, for a season. There is pleasures in sin, but for a season. A man was walking down the road one time, had a basket on his arm full of beans. And he was throwing these beans on the ground and there was a herd of pigs coming and gobbling them up. They're enjoying them. And he just keeps throwing them and throwing them. They're following him. And somebody said, well, sir, that's a weird way to feed your pigs. He said, I'm not feeding them. This is the way I take them to the slaughterhouse. That's the same way with sin. You're just gobbling it up. You're enjoying it, not even realizing where you're heading. You see, the devil has a basket on his arms. And there's pleasures of sin in it. Now, from conception, it leads to completion. What are the most beautiful television commercials? In my humble but accurate opinion, it will be the liquor commercials. Now, I'm not here to preach against or for alcohol today, but let me tell you something. Most interesting man in the world, who wouldn't want to be that guy? Show young people having fun in the office. They're having a blast on the beach. And I'm sitting around with kids with boogers on their noses, and I want that. Man, if I can just have that Corona... Ads are there to entice you to buy things. Not just alcohol, any ad. <laughs> Somebody said ads are created to entice us to buy the things we don't need so we can impress the people we don't like. We try to keep up with the Joneses, the lust of the eyes, and as soon as you keep up, they refinance. But here's the thing what I want to tell you in working in, in the hospital system. 
I've never seen a camera crew come down to the emergency room and show you the result of drunk driving. A kid's face that went through the windshield. They never show you the result of a drunkard laying in the gutter. They never show you the result of broken families. At the end of the commercial, they say, say, drink responsibly. That's it. Why? Because if they showed you the end, you wouldn't go out and buy it. Be like, eh, maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't buy it. I want that. And that's how the devil works. He shows you the beginning. He shows you the beginning. You're free to choose, but you're not free to choose the consequences of your choice, friends. After you choose, then the choice chooses you. If you think Eve saw the entire picture, the entire picture of her choice in disobeying God, you think she would have done it? Remember three things I said? All that in this world? Look with me in Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree is desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. So, good for food. Lust of the flesh. Pleasant to the eyes. Lust of the eyes. Pride of life. Don't make me wise. And fourth one, misery loves company, right? What happened to David? Lust of the flesh. In 2 Samuel 11, 2, did it happen one evening that David rose from his bed? There's so many issues with that statement when the king was were out battle, but I just want to we're not going to talk about that. We'll re- review this. He walked on the roof, king's house, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, looks very beautiful. Sin in its inception seems beautiful, pleasant, and nice. But as we read in James 1.15, then desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown brings forth death. That's what we fail to see. The devil distracts us from seeing this, reading the fine print. Full grown. Eve's sin full grown. You think if she saw her son killing her other son, and then all the humanity being cursed, the land that we walk on, I don't know if you know, the land that we walk on is cursed. Why do we have farmers having a difficult time, you know, growing food? All these weeds are coming up. Why? Result of Eve's actions. Animal kingdom, they're eating each other. Why? Result of Eve's actions. Back in the Garden of Eden, everybody just everybody was a vegetarian, <laughs> eating grass. Why? The result of sin. Do you think if she saw all that, she would have continued the conversation? No, but she saw good for the eyes, Good for food and make gonna make me wise. Do you think David would have committed adultery if he was able to see the consequence? What was God's verdict? David, your sin is forgiven and you will not die. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. 
I'm forgiven, I will not die. But there's a but. But. 2 Samuel 12, 11, 14. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversary against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do these things before all Israel before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed, this action, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. So adversary, inside your own home, what does it mean? You'll have trouble, difficulty, distress, disaster, suffering, affliction, sorrow, misery, tribulations, pain, trauma, all this. And then on top of that, that innocent baby, that innocent baby, you know, she's going to carry it nine months. We'll come to terms and guess what? It's going to die. Was David able to see Amnon will rape his half-sister? David's other uh, son, Absalom, will kill him, who David loves so much. This is why God's saying you can't just take sin for what it is to see what the beginning. You see, devil is very sinister. He's very slick. He seduces. But we have to look past the immediate conception to completion. The devil shows you only the beginning, but God shows you the entire picture in his word. That's why he gives us a warning. In Proverbs 20:17, he says, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to men, but afterward his mouth is filled with gravel. You ever had gravel in your mouth? Don't try it unless you want a large dental bill, but I have. Long story, maybe it's some other time. Proverbs 5, 3-5 says, The lips of a immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps laid hold of hell. Now it says here, immoral woman. But I was reading the King James Version. It says, strange woman. English Standard Version says, forbidden woman. Now it doesn't mean that she's from Venus or somewhere else. It means somebody's not your wife. She's a stranger to your home. For the lips of a strange woman were going to drop... As in honeycomb. Honey lips, right? Her mouth is smoother than oil. She's a fast talker. She's slick. She's beautiful. Those old lips. But notice, her end is bitter warm. Sharp wood, edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of hell. See a beautiful woman, you're like, wow. She's hot. But then if you saw all the rest, you're like, oh, never mind, right? So you have to see past. You have to see the end. Let me give you another scripture. And we talked about this last Sunday as well. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to man. This is so good. This is so beautiful, so natural. But its end is way of death. But each one is tempted. He's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So there's courtship, flirtation, consent, conception, and completion. Now, some of us may be living just one stage. You might be at the flirtation stage or courtship. Maybe some of you already give consent. 
Maybe your sin is already in conception stages coming up. Maybe it's already completed and you're dealing with it. You haven't seen the finished product yet. You haven't seen the whole thing. You haven't seen the finished product of the devil's art. Steve Lawson said this about sin. He said, sin dazzles, then delights, but it deceives and then destroys until at last it damns. So don't get the idea that sin is not very attractive. It's very attractive. Anybody go to Cobellas? I'm not the outdoor type, but my daughter wants to see the fish and look at the animals all the time. Every time I go to Costco, we have to kind of stop by Cabela's once in a while. Do you think the bass lure is attractive to bass? There's a multi-billion dollar industry just connected to make sure that there's everything that that bass wants for its own internal desires to catch it. So the devil is working overtime to make sin attractive for you. But you see, Romans 6.23, and I'm just going to read nine old text, but for the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel 18.20 says, the soul who sins shall die. And James 1.15 says, sin when it's full grown brings forth death. The reason a lot of people don't fear sin is we don't look far enough ahead. We don't look far enough ahead. We don't see when it's finished. Now, sometimes we think sin is some kind of evil act. It's not. You know what sin is? Sin is attempt to satisfy legitimate God-given desire. It may be hunger, sexual desire, desire to succeed. All these desires are legitimate. But you want to fill them in an illegitimate way. I always say devil is a pervert because he has doesn't have any raw material. He just takes your God-given desires and perverts them. He turns appetite, gluttony. He turns sexual desire or love into lust. All he can do is just take the natural God-given desires and pervert them. So God, James here makes it very clear that God is not responsible for our temptation to sin. Because God's own nature is incapable or is not capable with the nature of sin. Because God is a holy God, He's just, and He can have no part in sin in any way and to any degree. And that's what takes us to verse 117. It says, For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes from down from the Father of lights, and there is no variation or shadow of turning. What comes from God is not sin. But only every good thing given and every perfect gift. The perfect, flawless, holy goodness of God results in His doing and given only what reflects His perfect holiness and truth. His work reflects His character. Negatively, he's saying here, from temptation to execution, from that flirtation to completion, God has absolutely no responsibility for sin. Positively, he's saying here, God has complete responsibility for every good thing and every perfect gift that exists that has come down from above. Father of lights, that's the ancient name for a Jewish God, title God, because he was the creator, he created the light, heaven, sun, moon, the stars. But unlike those things that will eventually will vary and eventually will fade away, God's character's wisdom and love has no variation or shadowing. 
In Malachi 3.6 it says, For I am the Lord and I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed of sons of Jacob. And through John we are told in John 1.5, 1 John 1.5, This message that which we heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. See, the Lord promises in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he seeks finds and who knocks will be opened. Or what man is there among you who is the son asks for bread will, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent. If you then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Even more, more than those things, infinitely more than those things, He promises that He will give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the most important thing in your life. In Luke eleven thirteen, it says pretty much the same thing, but look, if, then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The implication of this passage, if we, as God's children, are continuously blessed with all the good things and the most gracious, valuable, and satisfying blessing from our heavenly Father can give us, why should anything evil have the slightest attraction to us? Why is it that we don't understand that forbidden fruit will create many jams in our lives? Why? Yes, in this life you're going to do, you're not going to go away with temptations. You're going to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. And like I said, some of you may be already hooked in the devil's stream. And he's reeling you into the bank. The devil will will you in. You're going to be spiritually dead. He will kill your family. He will kill your home. He will kill your testimony. It will kill your joy. It will kill your life. Sounds pretty depressing. But those are the consequences of sin that we don't think about. We must flee temptation, not leave a forwarding address. Sin has penalties and it leaves scars. Jesus, right? Just think about it. Sinless. All sin was put on him, right? Did it leave any scars? He left the scars on Jesus, on his hands, on his feet, on his ribs. So how are we going to live victoriously? Which brings me to my fourth point, defense responsibility. How are we going to live? First of all, when we sin, we must confess it. And John 1, 9, uh, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, you'll never have victory over sin. You'll never have victory in society until we stop calling people ill and start calling them evil. Until we stop calling men weak and start calling them wicked. Until we stop trying to blame others and accept the blame for sin. Let me make it very clear. Some people don't get this. 
Jesus did not die for mistakes. He did not die for what we call illnesses. He did not die for our weaknesses. He died to forgive sin. Until we admit it's sin, there's no hope. And there's one thing that God will not accept for sin, and that's the alibi. My friend, there's direct responsibility, therefore you can't blame God, you can't blame me, you can't blame the environment, you can't blame circumstances, you can't blame your parents, you can't blame your wife, you can't blame your mother, you can't blame your daddy issues or something. Those are all weapons that devil will use. They are there. Temptations are strong. But each one is tempted and he's drawn away by his own desires. That's what James tells us. Now, don't get the idea now, when I'm talking about confessing sin, I'm talking about the unsaved right now. I'm talking about the saved. You say, well, why do I need to confess sin if I'm saved? Glad you asked. I always say salvation has three parts. You're saved from your past sins. You're saved in your present. And then you'll be completely saved in glory. And obviously... The text we just read in John 1.9, it's intended for those who are saved, not the unsaved, because John uses and says, we. It includes himself, because he understood this principle well. Gospel includes the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And John 13.10, it says this, Jesus said to them, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but completely is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. The reference to bathing, complete cleansing, references positional forgiveness. But washing of the feet is an ongoing necessity of forgiveness and cleansing from sins committed as a Christian. David understood this principle very well too. When he committed the, the sin of adultery, he confessed it. To restore his fellowship with God. Look with me in Psalm 51, 2, 4. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So he's confessing. But then if you go down to verse 12, 51, 12. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's what he was missing. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who covers his sins will not prosper. That means those that unconfessed their, don't confess their sin. But whoever confesses and forsakes, that's the second part we need to remember, forsake, walk away, them will he have, have mercy. You see, it's not the perfection of your life. But it's the direction of your life that provides evidence of regeneration. David was not perfect at all. But as you read the life of David, he always confessed his sin. He always took responsibility. And he faced the consequences. So number two. Number one, confess sin. Number two, get into God's word. I cannot stress this enough. John 5.39 says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are which testify of me. Are you searching the scriptures? Are you? The only way to be saturated with the thoughts of Christ is to saturate yourself in the book that's all about Him. 
How much time do you spend in this book? And when I'm talking to you, again, remember, I am the first person I'm talking to myself first. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on it day and night, and you observe it according to all that's written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And Psalm 19.9 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. 19.105 says, Your word is the lamp of my feet and light of my path. See, we protect ourselves by meditating, memorizing the word of God. This is home base. Studying the God's Word, I can't do it for you, but will help you see the difference. When you study the Word, it will, it will, you'll see the difference between counterfeit and real, and then you just load up on the real. If you know the truth, it will keep you from being deceived. You will know how the devil attacks. In 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, Lest Satan should not take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Every time the devil would come to Jesus, when he stepped into it, he said, It is written, it is written, it is written. And Jesus ran him back three times and said, it is written, it is written, it is written. You see, the devil had some kind of severe allergy to, to the word. He couldn't argue. And God give you a book, dear friend, and the truth are in this book. And when you know them, you learn them, you appropriate them, the Holy Spirit uses this book, you're going to have power. I am telling you, there's dynamite in this book to overcome the devil. And one pastor was giving me some advice and he's telling me, you should study the word before you go to ministry, study the word and get into the scriptures. And I kind of said... <laughs> I got it. You know, I understand what you're saying. He said, no, you don't understand what I'm saying. He said, when a mosquito bites you, you better fly away singing, there's power in the blood. You know, studying the word. My wife's grandfather passed away. He had Alzheimer's. And this is a while back when we were dating. And he couldn't go make it to church anymore. <laughs> so every Sunday after church, he lived across the street from a church we attended we would go and visit him. And for whatever reason, he never remembered my wife, his granddaughter, but he always remembered me. And he said, why are you always bringing a different girl each time? But the point I'm trying to make this, this man studied the word. Even though he had Alzheimer's, and I'm not making this up, he would say, Grandpa, recite Psalm 2 for me he would go down and recite the entire psalm. I say, Grandpa, do Psalm 20. So just to test him, I open up the Bible. He might skip a word here or there, but my, what incredible, incredible memory. Why? Because back when he was in Soviet Union, they didn't have Bibles. So he would rewrite the book of Psalms. He kept it. That's how you got a Bible. You rewrite stuff. So he memorized it. So even the disease took his memory away. It did not take away the things in his heart. My friends, there's power in this book. And the devil hopes you don't learn the principles and the prominence prerogatives that are yours through this word. Do you realize you have the whole kingdom of God behind you? Do you realize that? I know I'm going over, but I'm loving it. I'm sorry. Remember the story of Elijah? 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17. Look at this. And the servant of the man of God arose early and went out. There was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots surrounding the city. So it's a pretty big army surrounding the city, not just a little tent and chariots. His servant sent to him, Alice, my master, what shall we do? There's two of them. 
So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Crazy old man. There's two of us. What are you talking about? And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened his eyes of the young man, and he saw, behold, a mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elijah. You see, the devil has no authority, no sins, no enticement, no temptation that you cannot overcome with this kingdom authority. We're son and daughters of the king. The devil is a roaring lion, but I want to tell you, friend, there's somebody's mighty greater than that. His name is Jesus. In Matthew 28, 18, he said, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has given to me in heaven and earth. In John, 1 John 4, 4, it says, and you are of God, little children have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the scope of it. You need to understand this authority. Third, fellowship with other Christians. We have a saying in Russian, it's because it doesn't rhyme in English, but it says, don't tell me who you are, tell me who your friends are, and I'll tell you who you are. I'm not saying we should not have friends that are not Christian. Bible does not teach that at all, but it does teach us to watch our company. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts, corrupts good habits. In Hebrews 10.25, not forsaken the assembly of ourselves together as a matter of some by exporting one another and so much more as you see day approaching. That means you need to come to church. You'll not make it if you won't have fellowship with other Christians. There's a perfect time for you right now. There's no evening activity. Invite somebody over to lunch. Not today. Today's Mother's Day. Go be with your mother. Invite somebody over for coffee. Pray for that person. You'll become a loving church. And number four, and I'm going to say it this way, and you tell me what you think it is. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to what? God in prayer. Pray. A lot of times the problem is not an unanswered prayer, the problem is an unoffered prayer. You know, oftentimes we start praying when we're already in the temptation. Do you know what that's like? That's like watching a building that's on fire, waiting till it completely burns down, then calling the fire department. Bible tells us in, in uh, Mark uh, 14.38, says, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And one of the reasons we enter temptation so easily is because we don't pray. Now, if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, if you're not born again, everything that I said to this moment will not make a difference in your life. Because you cannot pray, deliver us from evil, and not lead us into temptation, unless you can pray our Father. Is He your Father? Are you saved by faith, the crucified Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is Christ, Son of God, who died on the cross to pay for your sins? Are you willing, by faith, to receive him as your Lord and Master? Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Romans 10.03, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And again, I'll tell you, many argue, many argue what that whoever means. But whoever, in Greek, means whoever. Jesus died for your sins, and you need to commit to him, and you'll be saved. 
And I'm going to end with these words from Harry Lowe's from a poem. It's called All in Jesus. Friends all around us trying to find what a hurt earns by sin undermined. I have the secret. I know where it is found. Only in Jesus, true pleasures abound. Jesus is all put us for a world needs today. Blindly men strive, for sin darkens the way. Oh, draw the back the grim curtains of night. One glimpse of Jesus, and all will be right. And Dan will come and lead us in the song after prayer. Just bow our heads and pray. Father, what a practical and basic truth we learned this morning. Thank you for, if we walk in your spirit, we will not be filled with desires of the flesh. Thank you that if we have a mind of Christ, if our mind is filled with the richness of your word, our behavior will be controlled. Father, help us guard our hearts and our minds in order to keep us forces, sources of temptations away from us. Thank you, Lord, for all the beautiful mothers. Help us to support them and keep them in our prayers, and we'll lift them all up to you, to your love and care. May you bless them now on this special day. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In wonderful Jesus' name I pray. Amen.